You are listening to The Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. The starting bid for a once-in-a-lifetime experience, $50,000. And it seems like it's going up in a hurry, it says. As for who Brady challenged to join him, he picked his wife, his buddy Drake, and the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell. Roger, of course, famously suspended him four games back in 2015. But maybe, maybe they're uh, verbal bouquets. How about the commissioner bids on Tom's jersey? And then Tom invites the commissioner down to Tampa Bay for his first game. Tampa Bay, by the way. And t-shirts are available on the Dan Patrick Show website. You know what I found yesterday? Of course, I've been cleaning because my wife says, what are you doing? I go, nothing. She goes, how about you clean the attic? I go, okay. And so I was cleaning the attic. And I save everything. I came across this card. MVP presentation. Congratulations. And then what's written in is Eli Manning's name. This was when Eli won the Super Bowl. This was 2012. On behalf of Chevrolet Motor Division, we proudly present you with the 2012 Chevrolet Corvette Grand Sport Convertible Centennial Edition, which commemorates Chevrolet's 100-year anniversary. Chevy congratulates you on winning this MVP award, and we hope you drive it proudly. Now, that's where Eli famously walked off the podium before I gave him the keys because I think he had some kind of Toyota sponsorship deal. And I think that was in the uh, tri-state area where, you know, he peddled uh, Toyota. And he didn't want to be seen with Chevrolet Corvette keys. But I kept this. And then Seton goes, you know what's interesting is Eli is auctioning off that Chevy Corvette. Do you have the details on that, Seton? Uh, Yeah, well, I think it's part of the same thing that Tom Brady, with Tom Brady, you were just talking about with the all-in challenge. Oh, okay. uh, He's uh, celebrating, uh, selling his 2012 Super Bowl MVP Corvette. The starting bid was $10,000. I have, there's 14 bids on it now. I have it up to $41,000. And uh, I just think it's funny that he's been, it seems, yeah, he's probably been trying to get rid of this thing. (laughs) It's, it's got this rogue Corvette that he's not allowed to use because of his sponsorship deals. And then he's like, aha, (laughs) charity. That's what I'll do. It's got 5,800 miles on it. I'm surprised it has that much unless he drove it down from, you know, New Jersey to Mississippi. I was told it was in in Mississippi. Yes. It's a gorgeous car too. Uh, It's titanium, the color black leather interior. Uh, Yeah. And like you said, it's got under 6,000 miles on it. So you're getting yourself a hell of a car. Yeah, Paulie. We should match NFL quarterbacks with the cars we think they would drive because we always said like certain quarterbacks would drive a minivan. Like Eli doesn't seem like a minivan guy, but I could see him having a minivan in the fleet. I would think one of those sprinter vans, like it's a little souped up Mercedes sprinter van, but definitely you could see him with a family van. I I think Cousins has one of those. He has one of those uh, high-end sprinter vans. Now I'm, I'm willing to include this in the auction. I, I, you can put it on the dashboard. Fritzy, can you get a hold of maybe somebody with the Giants who can help me send this to Eli? We can do that. One thing interesting about the car, though, it won't go to San Diego. It goes to everywhere else, but it doesn't go to San Diego. <laughs> That's, That's pretty good. good. I got that. That's well done. It's a, it's a callback. Yeah. Callback joke. All right. Uh, so I, I'd be more than happy to include this in whoever buys this, that they're actually getting the card that I handed to or read from on the podium. 
after they won the Super Bowl. So if uh, somebody can help us with that, I'd be more than happy to send that out. And uh, you get the card that congratulates Eli Manning on behalf of uh, Chevrolet. Uh, I was talking to Paulie uh, in between hours here uh, a couple of minutes ago during the live look-in. And I said, you know what I was watching last night? Indecent Proposal. Now that's, you have Robert Redford, and he's a billionaire. Woody Harrelson is Demi Moore's wife. They're down on their luck. They don't have money, and they're in Vegas, and all of a sudden he makes this indecent proposal of a million dollars to spend the night with Demi Moore. Now the movie itself, the premise, really makes me uncomfortable. But I said to Paulie, I don't know if there's a more beautiful woman than Demi Moore when I looked at A Few Good Men, Indecent Proposal, and Disclosure with uh, Michael Douglas. Throwing about last night if you want to go old school. Man, she is remarkably brilliant, beautiful. Like, she, she is strikingly beautiful. And it's not an opinion. That's just basically a fact. <laughs> I even said that to my wife last night. Really? Yeah, I said... She's beautiful. And she goes, really? And then I go, you are too. But I'm saying she's be- other people can be beautiful, not just you. And uh, I just said, man, she jumps off the screen. Her and then Julia Roberts in Pretty Women, Pretty Woman and uh, Mystic Pizza. Julia Roberts jumps off the screen where you go, oh, my God. Like, I got to shield my eyes. Demi Moore in her prime movie years. Goodness. Spectacular. Really, really a beautiful, beautiful woman. Yeah, Paul. Have you ever seen her or met her in person? I don't think so. I have seen and met Bruce Willis. That's I mean, also it, beautiful. Yeah. Handsome. Just... Handsome. When he had hair. That's how long ago I met uh, Bruce. But I have not met Demi Moore. I'm trying to think. You know, when the ESPYs were around, you would see people. I remember Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker and they were standing next to me at the ESPN zone in Times Square. And it was just one of those. Sarah Jessica hadn't done, you know, her big series there, Sex in the City. Uh, but there are certain women when you meet them. When I met Charlize Theron, I didn't meet her. I was playing golf in Vegas. You were amongst her? No, no. I was uh, in the group behind her, but she was playing golf with her mom. And I purposely hit it into them. So I'd have to go up and apologize. And I and her mom looked beautiful as well. But I go up and I say, I'm so sorry. And then she goes, for what? And I go, oh, I, I hit my ball. And she goes, oh, is that is that illegal? And I go, no, no, I just I, 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 I you know, I hit the ball so long and I'm going, oh, God, this I sound like a fool here. And I she was striking like one of those where you go, I don't know what I what am I saying? Uh, I'm sorry beautiful but that was where you, you sometimes you run into these people i'm trying to think you know sandler when i was on the set with sandler jennifer aniston was prettier in person uh than i thought and nicole kidman was as well but sandman always has beautiful women on set um jessica beale when you you see her and you go and eh, she looks different she looks different than a lot of people there yeah seaton Part of the problem with those early uh, Demi Moore movies, though, is that, like uh, Paul brought up about last night, mm. and all of those Brat Pack movies, uh, is that Demi Moore was gorgeous, but Rob Lowe was way <laughs> prettier. Also fact. He was by, fo- by far the most gorgeous person on screen in all of those movies, so it kind of, you know, it stung a little bit, I think. Well, about last night, you're correct. 
that uh, Rob Lowe is the best looking person in the movie. And that includes the women as well. Yes, Paul. There's actually a line in the movie about last night by Jim Belushi where he says to Rob Lowe, his character says, the problem with you, man, is you're too good looking. The best thing that happened to you is an industrial accident. (laughs) It's a line from the movie. An industrial accident. (laughs) A little acid. Yeah. So I was watching that last night in Decent Proposal. And uh, Demi Moore. Good topic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Todd. He was also in Strip Tease, which you got to kind of put that in the uh, mix of movies worth checking out if you're a Demi Moore fan. Yeah. Shocker that uh, that would be the only movie you've probably seen of Demi Moore. Uh, I think I saw part of A Few Good Men. I, I didn't like her strip in tees. Strip Tease. Like, I, I liked her as just presented as, you know, she was an officer in A Few Good Men. Yeah, she just looked like she was dressed normally, but she is abnormally beautiful. Yeah, Paul. We almost had her on the show once when when she was with uh, Ashton Kutcher, and you called Ashton Kutcher soft on the air. Ashton Kutcher, he filmed a video and sent it to us. Yes. And said soft, and he was in the car, and his wife, I think she was shooting it. She was shooting the video in the passenger seat, and uh, Ashton Kutcher sent. He goes, Dan Patrick, what are you talking about? I'm soft. I'm rock hard. I'm I'm ready to go. And he he called, and she was laughing. It was awesome. Yeah, that's right. We got him, and he's handsome, but. To me, would have been uh, a little bit better payoff there. All righty. Um, welcome to the program. We're already in progress, as you can tell. I'm kind of dizzy from talking about this. Richard Roper, the uh, film critic, Chicago Sun-Times, has watched. It's not the Jordan documentary. It's the Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. We'll talk to Richard Roper about that. I like how Jordan already sent out a quote saying, hey, you might think I'm a really horrible guy after you watch this documentary. Mike would purposely pick on certain teammates. And Scotty Burrell played at UConn, and uh, he was a role player. And Mike said that he picked on him because he wanted him tough when they faced the Miami Heat and the New York Knicks in the playoffs. But uh, Mike wasn't afraid of picking on some people, including Steve Kerr, who will also join us coming up a little bit later on. Dak Prescott clarifies his dinner party. I think he's sort of saying... You know, I made a bad decision, so I'm going to make better decisions as I move forward. But, uh, you know, this isn't an accurate report by TMZ. I'm going to take TMZ at their word here. I am over Dak Prescott. Uh, Maybe it started out as a small, intimate dinner party, and then you had people coming over after the fact. But, you know, you got busted with video and pictures there. And Zeke Elliott, I thought he was an offensive lineman when I saw him. Like, Zeke, come on. You got to back away from the buffet. And another thing, you don't have a buffet, eight or ten, eight people. Buffet, it feels like if you're having 30, you have a buffet. Paulie, though, is trying to punch holes in my Dak Prescott apology or clarification. If he had 10 people who are big eaters and overordered, he didn't break the rules. He didn't have his offensive linemen there. Mm. It, yes, Todd. But what if there was more than 10, but they weren't on top of each other? You had eight in the backyard, five in the basement, seven in the billiards room. But he didn't tell us. Then tell us that. He said that he didn't have even 10. I'm going to take TMZ at their word. I'm going to take Harvey Levin at his word that uh, his crew has this story buttoned up here. Uh, I think the bigger story, now obviously that, yes, Seton. Not to be Debbie Downer on it, but uh, I usually am. But even still, even if Dak only had less than 10 people on, he still completely is missing the spirit of yeah. having people over to your house for yes. dinner parties, whether it's 10 people or not. That's true. And uh, he's since sort of <laughs> modified his statement on this. It's not an apology. It's more of just a, a correction here. I've got to make better choices. 
He's also not going to take part in the Cowboys' virtual OTAs. Now, OTAs aren't a big deal. You know, Brady stopped going when Giselle said, you got to come home and, you know, be, be the role of father and husband here. And he, he did that later in his uh, tenure at, at, uh, in New England. But if you're Dak Prescott and you're trying to negotiate a new contract, why not put the pressure back on the Cowboys to say, get this done. I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do as your quarterback. And I'm going to be there for the virtual OTAs. Now, OTAs, all right, you're going to work out. Uh, there's some meetings. You know, maybe you go over. You got a new head coach in town. And that's where Dak should be saying, I owe it to Mike McCarthy to be on board to make sure that he can do his job as well. And this is just a small thing. It may not have any impact on the season, but the optics, as we like to say, Dak is doing everything he's supposed to be doing. Come on, Jerry, get this contract. There's more value that goes with being the Cowboy quarterback than any other quarterback in the NFL. And, and with this comes a lot of attention, good and bad. And he just got the negative attention because somebody took a picture or said, hey, I'm at Dak's house, and that got out. Now you're not going to do the virtual OTA. Do this to have the fans on your side. You're going to be asking for $35 million. And the fans don't care how much you get paid. They just want to know you're going to be the quarterback there. We've been going through this for what? 18 months? Dak Prescott on and off his contract? 18 months. And, and the longer the Cowboys you know, let this play out, it seems like it costs them more. If they would have done this when I was told they were going to do that, that weekend of the first NFL season, they were going to have his deal locked up. But if I'm Dak Prescott, I, I understand I can take less, but I'm going to make a whole lot more by being the Cowboys quarterback. I mean, you want to test this, Dak, end up, you know, some other place and you're the quarterback there and tell me, you know, what you're making in uh, advertising dollars, spokesman dollars. It'll be drastically different there. He's making 10 million probably off the field. Now, granted, he didn't make much, you know, as a what third round draft pick. Uh, but, you know, now you have your chance to make real money and you're not the best quarterback. You're not a top 10 quarterback. If you get 35 a year, take it. And run with it. Because if you were with the Texans, it would be completely different in your value off the field. If you were with Jacksonville, if you were with Cincinnati, like all these other places, you're with the Cowboys, you're the quarterback, go in, you know, be part of the virtual OTAs. Be the bigger man than the Cowboys. Turn it around and say to Mike McCarthy, Coach, I'm here for you. You know, as, as best I can, I'm here for you. That's what he needs to do, in my opinion. Get a positive out of this. Don't go, nope, I don't have a contract. I'm not going to be there. You're going to get a contract. Do this for Mike McCarthy. I know that Dak Prescott looks around and he goes, wait, you, you made my offensive lineman the highest paid at their position. Amari Cooper getting $100 million. Zeke got paid here. What about me? I get it. But they're not getting $35 million a year, Dak. In NFL history, only two quarterbacks have had a higher rating over their first four seasons. QBR, the career passer rating for Dak is 97. The only other players in the history of the NFL first four years who had a higher rating, Kurt Warner and Russell Wilson Jr. the third. 
seemed like a stat of the stat of the day. Stat of the day! Stat of the day! Dun, dun. Woo! The first hour, he could go three or 23 just because of the medicals here. And that's why you're trying to, you're getting this propaganda, this big push to go, hey, he's healthy. Doctors are saying he's healthy. I want my, if I'm the Dolphins, I don't want to rely on your doctors. I want to rely, you can say, oh, they're independent doctors. I want my doctor to look at you. It's my draft pick, and this could help us or hurt us over the next three or four years. I want my doctor to look at you. Yeah, Paul. I still don't understand how the one team, can, can a team like the Miami Dolphins say, hey, look, can we send one doctor to you, and that's it? Our team doctor meets with you. Nobody else is in the room. Can that be done? You would think that a one person could meet with one other person, even in what's going on. Yeah, today. but then the Chargers may go, well, they got to do it. <laughs> we want to do it. Yeah. Then you're going to get other teams go, wait, we, we can go work out to it? But it's maybe three doctors total. <laughs> maybe. A, a how pool, about a, they a, meet at Dak's house? A pool doctor. And therefore, nobody knows how many people are there. <laughs> right. He'll get the food. <laughs> uh, come on over. I got a big spread here for you. Zeke's still eating, so <laughs> he'll be there. Hey, Zeke, how are you? <laughs> now I know when he's doing yeah. that, where you got to feed him. Yeah, it's like literally. Yes. Keep feeding him. <laughs> I'm eating. All right. When we come back, Richard Roper, <laughs> the film critic from the Chicago Sun-Times. What did he think of the Chicago Bulls documentary? The 10-part series here. He'll join us and Steve Kerr will join us in an hour from now. 20 after the hour, this is The Dan Patrick Show. Thanks for listening to The Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for The Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. The Cleveland Browns have new uniforms coming out. According to Adam Schefter, Browns will unveil their new unis today. All proceeds from the sales Go to their Hats Off to Our Heroes Fund to support the COVID-19 relief efforts. Are we hearing any indication of what direction the Cleveland Browns are going in with the new uniform? Yeah, Dan, sources close to the I-team said, very, very old school. Look for an old school look with the Browns uniforms. They will have like a a color rush or an alternate jersey, Hmm. but they said look for them to go away from that kind of like extra Browns weird logos up and down the, the pants and more but, like but, a... But how old is old school? I would say maybe like the Brian Sype, Greg Pruitt era, Ooh. late 70s, early 80s. Ooh, That's what I'm it. hearing. Okay. Sources close to the I-team say they could be channeling Brian Sype. The uh, uniform department. Yeah. Do it Pruitt. I loved Greg Pruitt at Oklahoma. He's Richard Roper, Chicago Sun-Times columnist, movie critic. He was given the early access to The Last Dance, the 10-part ESPN docuseries about the 1990 Bulls. That premieres this Sunday. So is this the Bulls documentary or the Michael Jordan documentary, Richard? Well, Dan, you were there at the time, and you that was always the question. Are, are we talking about the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s or Michael Jordan? He dominates the documentary the same way he dominated <laughs> every conversation about the Bulls in the 1990s, uh, every interview, even when you're, you know they're talking to Steve Kerr or Dennis Rodman or Barkley or anybody else, they're usually talking about Jordan. So he's definitely the focal point of this interview. And as you well know, Michael's not always been the most candid and forthcoming and you know honest guy when it comes to interviews. He you know he always kept it kind of a close guard. So. It's really refreshing to see him open up on so many levels in this documentary. Did they need to do 10 parts? Does it feel like it's stretched out just to stretch it out for 10, 10 parts? 
if it were only about the Bulls on court, I'd say, okay, even a team that won six NBA titles doesn't need 10 hours. But when you look at the off-court soap opera that went on through the 90s, from Michael's gambling problems to the tragic murder of his father to Jerry Krause saying organizations win championships, not only players, to the Dennis Rodman circus, to Michael retiring in the middle of his peak to play baseball. There's so much material there, Dan. I mean, it actually doesn't feel like it's stretched out at all. How deep do they go into Jordan's gambling? It's not it's not a huge part of the documentary. Uh, you know, they do talk about it. You know, the infamous interview where he did himself no favors with the mob Rashad when he kept his sunglasses on mm. and said, I don't I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. Uh, you know, they, they they don't shy away from it, but it's they don't spend a whole episode on it. either. Is there one of those? Oh, my gosh, moments in this documentary? <sighs> I don't know if there's an oh-my-gosh moment. I, you know, it's not as if we're learning a ton of stuff that, you know, the hardcore sports fan didn't know before. It's the, To me, the most interesting thing, Dan, is to see these guys in present day, Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas, Larry Bird, still having that competitiveness. You know, and the, some of the favorite moments for me for the documentary is when the filmmakers, they'll hand Jordan a tablet where he can see an interview with someone that was done for the documentary. So they play him, Isaiah Thomas, trying to rationalize why the Pistons didn't shake hands with the Bulls after the 1991 Eastern uh, NBA Eastern Conference Finals. And Jordan looks at it and shakes his head and then in uh, kind of an expletive-laden way calls Isaiah quite a few names and, tells, and says he's not buying any of this guy's crap. I saw where Bill Lane Beer was on ESPN, I think, yesterday, and he said LeBron is the greatest basketball player of all time, not Michael Jordan. Yeah. So these guys are taking this to their graves, that, that competition, yeah. that, that doesn't dissipate. You know, Maybe it gets put on a back burner, but it's always going to be there. And I can oh, imagine yeah. Mike holds grudges. Mike invented grudges. He created grudges. And you go, oh my God. right? Yeah. They talk, he, he constantly talk, they talk about that quite a bit, as you know. He would try. He had to find a reason to get fired up for games. So, you know, if Jerry Krause at one point said he really liked Dan Marley, then the next time Marley guarded Jordan, Jordan was going to hit fifty points against him. You know, any little perceived <laughs> slight, and he actually says, you know, the famous kind of you know fist pumping, waving thing he did after hitting the shot against the Cavaliers. He said that was directly aimed at the uh, Chicago beat writers, all of whom oh. had predicted the Cavaliers would win the series. And he says again in this, you're right, this is a guy now in his 50s. And he goes, bleep you, bleepers, you didn't believe in us. That's That was for you. Jordan had a kind of preemptive quote here before this is released this uh, weekend, saying, I, I uh, come off as maybe not a, uh, a good guy in this. I'm paraphrasing, basically saying, you know, I pick on uh, teammates, in fact, Steve Kerr's on with this next hour, and we know what happened with uh, – do they address the punch when he punched Steve Kerr in practice? Yes, in great detail. And the fact that he would pick on – you know, you might, you might remember this. He famously would call Will Purdue Will Vanderbilt because he said he wasn't tough enough to be named <laughs> after a Big Ten team. But he would – you know, he, he was just which, you know, let's face it. The guy was pretty good. He was kind of the Don Rickles of, of practice. But you, as you know, Dan – 
you know, oh. the Bulls practices were, you know, famously intense. And he would pick on somebody like a Scotty Burrell, who came out of college as a top-rate player, but was a super nice guy. And Michael would just pick on him, pick on him, pick on him. And you see guys like Burrell and Judd Butler and a lot, a lot of, you know, kind of secondary players saying, no, he wasn't a good guy at all. He was not nice at all. But – Jordan says, I never asked anybody else to do what I wouldn't do when it comes to working out, staying on the court, playing tougher. So he made everybody around him better. Uh, we're talking to Richard Roper, the uh, great movie critic, uh, columnist, Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, Rodman, more interesting on the, fi- uh, on the court or off the court, considering uh, he was married to Carmen Electra, he dated uh, Madonna, everything else that went along with Rodman. Yeah, I remember being on the sidelines of a game one day, talking to a bunch of beat writers, and they're like, what is this nonsense? Is he really dating Madonna? I'm like, she's right behind you right now. You know, she come to Chicago for the game. Uh, you know, the antics, to me, one of the most fascinating things is at one point uh, in, the, in their final run in the 97-98 season, Rodman said he just wasn't motivated. He needed a vacation. And Phil and Michael unilaterally uh, decided – let him have 48 hours of Vegas. He went to Vegas on a vacation, and Carmen Electra is in this documentary as well. She goes, I didn't know he had a game that weekend. I'm not a <laughs> basketball fan. Can you imagine now in this day and age a player and a coach saying, yeah, take 48 hours off. And Jerry Reinsdorf said, I, mean, I didn't know about it either until I saw them in the news that he was in Vegas. Two stories that – and I have a lot of stories, some that I can't tell, but some that have to do with the Bulls. <laughs> sure, but sure. one was Rodman had a birthday party at a place called the Crowbar. And yeah. I remember going in, and it was the second floor, and he had it all to himself. And he always thought I was Craig Sager. He, forever, he'd say, hey, what's up, Sager? And I go, hey, Dad, I just got to the point I answered for Craig Sager. If you, if you went to the bar to get a beer – there, it, it, the bar was full of kamikazes, so there's no place for anything else other than if you went to the bar, you had to do a shot. And then uh, Dennis would do a shot, and he had a Chicago police uniform or shirt on. And yep. I, re- I remember I left at 4 in the morning. He had a game the next night. So Rodman was there when I left the crowbar. I get to practice. They have a, a shoot-around at like a 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. I see Judd Bushler and Steve Kerr, and they go, uh, here, you ran into Dennis last night. I go, is he here? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's down at the other end running around like a madman. And I think he had 18 rebounds that night in the game. And the other one was, I'm at a game against Seattle in the NBA Finals. And I'm, I'm covering Seattle's huddle for ESPN Radio. And I see um, the conversation that, that they were having with, like they were arguing in the huddle. Uh, you know, Jordan was yelling and, and everybody was yelling. And Phil just was standing there. And Phil finally goes, and, and he said something like, shut up or whatever. And, and then everybody stopped. And then he basically said, shut up so Michael can tell you what we're going to do. And I was just like, <laughs> Oh, my God. The other time, Dennis was playing in a game. Ball goes out of bounds. Prince is in the front row, and he goes over, and he starts to talk to Prince, and Prince doesn't acknowledge him. And Prince's bodyguard says, you have to talk to me, and then I tell Prince what you're saying. So Dennis, so Dennis is talking to his bodyguard, who then turns to Prince because Dennis wants to know if Prince wants to go out after the game, I was told. Like, there are just so many things that happen with those. 
And when's the last time you remember a team that everybody loved, unless they were facing your team? These guys were true. Like Golden State, we turned against Golden State after a while. You know, the Patriots, you turn against all these teams. You just go, oh, I love them or hate them. The Bulls had a fascination that didn't turn other people off, which is amazing. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, remember when, when Jordan came back and, and went to Madison Square Garden and there were signs on Broadway in New York welcoming Jordan back. And there's a great, you know, uh, uh, segment in the documentary where the Bulls went to Paris, you know, one summer and the French media were going. I mean, they were, it was insane. And, and Michael wears a beret. That's his way of acknowledging <laughs> that he's in Paris. You know, so it really was, you know, and I know, the, you know, the younger folks are sort of like, oh, there's a lot of great teams like the Patriots. But Dan, what you're saying is true. The universal love and respect. And Magic Johnson gives a beautiful quote in the documentary where he's like, Losing to the Bulls was still an honor, you know, to Michael Jordan and the Bulls. That was a different level. You didn't feel bad. You held your head up high if you lost to the Chicago Bulls at that time. And I still look back on the role that Jerry Krause played and, like, who was more responsible for the Bulls being great. And I, and, and I, I don't know if it came down to Phil versus Jerry Krause or Michael versus Jerry Krause. But Jerry Krause, the GM, you know, helped build the team, and he was going to disassemble it, take the wrecking ball to it. How did they address that? Why was it the last dance? Why didn't they stick around and try to make one more go of it? Yeah, that's a, that's a central theme of the documentary, and I do agree with you. I think, you know, Jerry Krause, and Steve can talk about this, Steve Curve, but he was his own worst enemy. But he, I think he is unfairly maligned for, you know, a few comments because when you look at what he did building those teams, you know, people forget Pippen was actually drafted by Seattle, yeah. but the Bulls had orchestrated this trade for him. He found Horace Grant. He always found the perfect guys. Jordan and Pippen were the only two guys who were on all six of those teams. He always found a guy, okay, we need a veteran. We're going to get Bill Cartwright. We lost Horace Grant to the Magic. We're going to bring in a rebounder to Dennis Rodman. We don't have Paxson anymore. We got John, uh, Steve Kerr. You know, they all, he always figured out a way to put the perfect pieces in place. He's also the guy that that recommended to Reinsdorf that they bring in this guy named Phil Jackson, who was in the outer outer edges of organized basketball. And they brought him in as an assistant, and then eventually, you know, he became you know the head coach. So you know, Kraus, you know, unfortunately is not remembered well, you know, and he, and he said the wrong things, and, and, he, and he did. He wanted to dismantle that team probably a year early. To tell Phil Jackson before his final year, it, even if you go 82-0, and you're not coming back, that's insanity. Because it, it couldn't have been monetary reasons, could it? Because Mike was making about $30 million a year, but, yeah. you know, for so many years, Mike was the fourth, fifth, or sixth highest paid player on his own team. He made so much money from Nike, but... I, I didn't understand, was it ego to say, hey, I can do this with another team and another coach, or was it money? It, it was definitely ego. It wasn't about Man. money. It was definitely about ego, about why are these – you know, it happens in our business sometimes, too, where a program director doesn't understand why the, why the host is getting all the attention when he built the radio station. And, and, <laughs> and Gary – Jerry Jan's laughing. He doesn't know what I'm talking about there. That's never happened. <laughs> but, you know, I think, unfortunately, yeah, Jerry just, you know, he, he, he didn't get any credit, you know, he, and he wanted that. And you're, you're absolutely right, Jan. He wanted to, you know, get rid of Phil Jackson, say goodbye to Michael, Man. and start all over again with Tim Floyd and, you know, and rebuild the dynasty. And we all know how that didn't work out. 
Great stuff, Richard, as always. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to watching it. Thanks, Dan. That's Richard Roper. Uh, the Last Dance, 10-part ESPN docuseries on the 90s Bowls. That premieres this Sunday. Uh, Richard also has uh, a podcast called Feel Good Movie as they uh, break down Richard's picks for best feel-good movies in genres for comedies to scary movies to sci-fi to classics. We'll take a break. Uh, Darren Ravel, sports business reporter, is uh, going to join us. What's Darren going to talk about other than are we still facing potential cease and desist from Tom Brady? Yeah, and uh, the NFL draft, the draftees. Oh, that's right. Under orders. Okay. I'll just give you a little bit of a tease here of why we're going to have Darren on. Now, we we haven't heard from Tom Brady's camp, and maybe we don't. Maybe Tom and I can work this out like gentlemen, you know, 10 paces and have a duel or something like that. Uh, But the other thing is these draft picks are going to be at their homes, and they're not allowed to have any commercial endorsement whatsoever unless they use NFL products. They're They're not even NFL employees yet. So we'll talk to Darren Ravel about that. And Steve Kerr will join us in the final hour. Back after this in the Dan Patrick Show. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. And you can find us on the iHeartRadio app at FSR or stream us live every day at YouTube.com slash the Dan Patrick Show. Those numbers might be attached to Steve Kerr. Hmm. Steve Kerr joining us in a half hour from now. Am I warm? Am I warm? Not that warm. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. That's it. That's all I wanted to know. Uh, Darren Ravel, sports business reporter for the Action Network. Uh, Last time we had him on, he said, don't worry about a potential lawsuit from Tom Brady with our Tampa Bay T-shirts. And I haven't received a cease and desist yet, Darren. So we'll plow ahead. We don't have to worry about that. I saw your article on the draftees at the NFL draft can't have any sponsorship attached to their virtual draft selection. They've done this for years, though, haven't they? So why yeah. why, why is the NFL cracking down here? I think it's because it's all virtual and there's no one showing up to any draft location, Dan. I mean, we, we saw when Mariota and, and Winston stayed home and then probably got, you know, $50,000 each to uh, – to do beats by Dre, have beats by Dre headphones when the NFL's deals with Bose. I think the NFL has been monitoring it over the years. Um, there, there was that moment with Charles Harris when he had Sasquatch in the background of the, uh, you know, I think Rich Eisen confused him with, or, or maybe it's Trey Wingo confusing with Chewbacca, which he wasn't. He was the Jack Links guy. Uh, but, um, yeah, so over the years it's kind of been happening. Last year ESPN said, hey, don't even think about putting a brand on the camera when the guy's coming in. You know, we don't want to be taken advantage of. And this year a four-page memo from the NFL essentially saying what you can eat, drink, and wear. Uh, okay, so the fact that now they can face a fine, they're not an employee yet. How, how does that, the, that's, that's a problem. It doesn't specify any type of penalty because they're not employed by the league. They haven't signed a group licensing agreement with the Players Association. They don't have a contract with the league. Basically what the league is saying is this is an NFL broadcast brought to you by our partners, uh, ESPN, ABC, and the NFL Network. And if you want to be on it, you have to only use our sponsors and abide by all these rules. 
Now, I mean, I guess the question is, does does the guy who's in charge of marketing for for Tua, you know, I mean, does he do his own stream? How valuable is it to be seen on the broadcast? And is it worth it to take deals from non-sponsors? Non-sponsors are going to pay you more, yeah, right? Because they don't have a deal with the NFL. This gets them in. Uh, so that's that's a question. Will over the next week, you know, anything happen where a guy is going to say, you know what, I'm going to do a live cam of mine, and I'm just going to take all the money. And and, and the NFL really can't do anything about it. And obviously, someone's not going to be picked because of that. You know, uh, we we don't like that he's he's uh, going against us. So the NFL really doesn't have any recourse. Yeah, if I'm one of these guys, a, a mid-first uh, round or late first round or second round pick, and I have a chance to get product placement there, I go for it, you know? I, I'm not an employee, but, you know, what's the NFL going to do, you know? Yeah, pe- people, people will say, well, if you're a second round pick, like what's your marketability? Remember, there are guys who have, plenty of marketability from their college days where an entire college will watch their live stream. They can, so it's not, it's not only, you know, the first couple guys, there, there are guys who come from a big college who can get a, a, a fair amount of audience by going alone. I, I, listen, the NFL has the right to do this, I guess, if, if they go on the broadcast, but um now, what about Uncle John? I mean, if, 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 he's, <laughs> if, if, if he's six feet away and he's walking behind the couch at the right time with a, uh, uh, a Dr. Pepper, well, you know, maybe you do deals <laughs> with the family. You, you, you know, there's a lot of uh, in tennis. They always do deals with the, with the uh, Uncle Tony and the, the people in the, in the, uh, in the box of the player. Hey, we didn't do a deal with Tua. We did a deal with his dad. And his dad happened to be walking behind just as the Dolphins were, were selecting the pick. Good stuff, Darren. Stay in touch. Let us know if we're in you trouble with Tom Brady. I hope I hope I hope sales are going really well. They for are. You. They're brisk. You it, deserve it. It's pre yeah. pre lawsuit, pre cease and desist uh, sale going on right now. That's uh, Darren Ravel, <laughs> right. sports business reporter for the Action Network. You know, he was talking about tennis. I don't know why we couldn't have tennis resume if you don't have fans. By the way, fans are told to be quiet during a tennis match. Now, in between points, of course, you can make noise, but. Let's say you we're going to have you're, you you have social distancing. I got robotic cameras. Uh, I I do have to have a, a you know my uh, head judge there, my umpire, but I don't I won't even have ball boys. Go get your own uh, tennis balls. But you could still do tennis, golf, and now it feels like we're starting to turn the corner here. Though, I think in the next couple of weeks, maybe the next week, we're gonna you're gonna start to hear a little bit more. Hopefully planning, but it, 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 I think it's going to be premature, but it's going to feel like we're getting closer to having some kind of sports come back. I get that feeling that we're just about on that edge. Steve Kerr will join us coming up. Final hour. We'll get to your phone calls as well, and we'll put the finishing touches of Tom Brady in his Tampa creamsicle uniform during the final hour. Coming up, Dan Patrick Show.